I'm going to make a bold prediction and say today we're going to get through chapter 10. <laughs> we're going to do it. Okay? So, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, it's on the website. I would suggest go back and listen to it. We had some discussions, some good discussion. I think we're finally past Cornelius' vision or his visitation from an angel. And so, the last thing we saw last week was that Cornelius received a vision and he obeyed it immediately. The, the angel gave him an instruction. He said, send for this man, Peter, who's in Joppa. He's staying with another man named Peter who is a tanner by the sea. Send some men, bring him here. He has a message for you. Cornelius immediately gets two servants and a, and a soldier and says, go get this man, Peter. He explains it to him. He obeys immediately. So we'll pick up in verse 9. Well, let's let's, let's get a run start. Uh, we'll start at 7. Hey, Judy. So when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now on the next day, as they were on their way, and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That's about noon, about lunchtime. But he became hungry, and he was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lower by four corners to the ground. And they were, and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. Uh, how is that translated in y'all's? Does that say reptiles, serpents, crawling creatures? All kinds okay. of animals, reptiles, and birds. Reptiles, okay. So we know that all reptiles are unclean under the, under the old food laws, okay? So we know that these are not all clean. That's how, okay? That's very plain. There's are clean and unclean animals are contained within the sheet. Or tapestry, I think it's another. Does it say tapestry or sheet? Well, so it contains all kind of four-footed animals, serpents, snakes, crawling creatures of the earth, and birds of the air. Also, carrion-eating birds were considered unclean as well. Any meat-eaters. And so a voice came to him and said, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. But Peter said, here's a good response, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. Another way to Work that would be common. I've never eaten anything common. Okay. Or unclean. And again a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy or common. This happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. So just let's just, just picture this, okay? Peter goes up on the roof to pray around noon. That's we'll do them. They always went, did a lot of stuff on the roof. It's warm. The sun's shining on him. He's praying and he falls asleep like a lot of us do while we're praying. It says trance. I kind of figure that he's just kind of drifted off to sleep, half sleep, half trance, anyway, whatever. And uh, he receives this vision of these 
animals encased in this big sheet or tapestry, whatever you want to call it. Some clean, some unclean. And God says, okay, you hungry? Get up, go kill one, go kill one of these animals and eat it. And what was his response? By no means, Lord. Mm-mm, I don't eat that stuff. So right there we see a difference between Cornelius' response and Peter's response. Peter's hard-headed. Okay, Peter's hard-headed. And uh, what I was saying last week was we as non-Jews tend to, when we read this passage, we want to focus on Cornelius because Cornelius' conversion is very important to us, right? It's, it's the first of us that was brought into the covenant. But really, the, the focus in this passage is Peter. Peter's hard-hearted racial prejudices toward Gentiles and his resistance to change. So this, the, if you'll notice, Peter is in view throughout this entire narrative. We see Cornelius when he sees when he receives the visit, and we see Cornelius again when Peter gets there. But Cornelius ain't even being discussed here. That's one reason I say this is more about Peter than it is Cornelius. Okay, what we're being, what we're seeing here is the change of Peter's heart toward Gentiles or non-Jews. Okay, so <clears throat> he goes up on this roof and sees this thing, and he says, "No, nah, no, nah, I don't eat that stuff, Lord. Lord, I don't eat that." Okay. So the Lord tells him three times, get up and kill and eat. No, I don't do that. Don't call it unclean what I've called clean. Okay, so in order for, instead of me trying to just kind of explain this, this, this commentary is just so clear and concise. This is kind of long. And it's kind of, I, you know, it's, uh, kind of hard for me to read and to not choke up, but I'll try my best. But it's just kind of a, you know, an exposition of this, I guess you'd call it, as it applies to us, okay? This vision, okay? So this is R. Kent Hughes from his commentary on Acts, okay? He says this, how does Peter's experience apply to us? No one has given a better answer than the peerless Alexander White to his vast congregation at Free St. George's in Edinburgh, Scotland. And he says this, quote, Also like ourselves, for how we also bundle up whole nations of men and throw them into that same unclean sheet. Whole churches that we know nothing about but their bad names that we have given them are in our sheet of excommunication also. All the other denominations of Christians in our land are common and unclean to us. Every party outside our own party in the political state also. We have no language contemptuous enough wherewith to describe their wicked ways and their self-seeking schemes. They are four-footed beasts and creeping things. Indeed, they are. there are very few men alive, especially those who live near us, who are not sometimes in the sheet of our scorn. Unless it is one here and one there of our own family, our school, or party. And they also come under our scorn and our contempt the moment they have a mind of their own, and interests of their own, and affections and ambitions of their own. End quote. That's Alexander White. 
he goes on to say, We too write off whole churches simply by what we have heard about them. We too shut out whole ethnic groups because of a bad experience with one person or one family. We too mentally excommunicate those who do not agree with us on one secondary issue or another. Our sheets easily fill with educational, racial, cultural, and spiritual rejects. And we cry, by no means, Lord, they are not my type. The result, of course, is a Christianity that grows solely on homogeneous lines or homogeneous lines. We then only seek to win our own kind, and thousands never come to grace who, humanly speaking, would have if they were given a chance. This tragedy is compounded by the fact that, like Peter, we can have these unacceptable attitudes even while generally being in fellowship with Christ. Remember this. Peter was praying when he had the vision. Okay? He had a beautiful attitude toward God, but a lousy one toward the world. If we do not respond to Christ's prodding and let him change our heart's attitudes, our relationships with people will suffer, and eventually our relationship with God will as well. Peter was at a crossroads, but he came through beautifully. Now let's go to the next section, verse 17. We'll move on. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made, a, having made inquiry for Simon's home, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, and I see we see again, God is directly intervening in this event okay these these are direct miraculous events bringing about this meeting between peter and cornelius okay god is directly putting his hand in this just that's important so the spirit said to him behold three men are looking for you rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation for i have sent them okay so direct the command to peter these men are gentiles one of them's a roman soldier Okay, the spirit says, I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion. So he knows right then who he's dealing with. Okay, if there's a Jew, there's a Roman soldier standing in front of him, a, a Roman oppressor. <clears throat> An upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. He invited them in to be his guests, a Roman soldier and two Gentiles. So uh, R. Kit Hughes goes on to say this, the angels must have watched Simon the Tanner's home carefully that night. How would the apostle respond to the heavenly vision? Hallelujah, he obeyed. He took a glorious step and invited the visitors in. The Jewish face of the church thus came to an end, and a new attitude began to sweep the church. Do we see those around us as potential heirs of grace? Do we view those who are different from us and who, not, and who do things we do not approve of as candidates for the kingdom? Okay, these are all questions we need to be asking ourselves.
Our attitude makes all the difference. If, if we are anti-Semitic, we will never lead a Jew to Christ. If we have written off a, relation, a relative, he or she may be written off for eternity. If we are elitists, most of the rest of the world will never experience grace through us. Peter's attitude changed that day. To be sure, there were still a lot of rough edges. Sometimes, for example, later in Antioch, he regressed. We'll get to that later. We all know what that story is, right? But it is also true that Peter died in Rome, the center of Gentile power. He never sheltered himself among his own people or own land again. God changed him, and he can change us. If we are resisting God's overtures in this regard, we need to hear the words of Alexander White. This is the same guy from earlier. He was a preacher in Edinburgh, Scotland. He says this, quote, It would change your whole heart and life this very night if you would take Peter and Cornelius home with you and lay them both to heart. If you would take a four-cornered napkin when you get home and a Sabbath night pen and ink and write the names of the nations and the churches and the denominations and the congregations and the ministers and the public men and the private citizens and the neighbors and the fellow worshipers, all the people you dislike and despise and do not and cannot and will not love, Keep all their names into your unclean napkin and then look up and say, Not so, Lord. I can neither speak well nor think well nor hope well of these people. I cannot do it and I will not try. If you acted out and spake all the evil things that are in your heart in some such way as that, you would thus get such a side of yourself that you would never forget it. Do we dare... Write down the names of individuals and groups to which we have an effect said, By no means, Lord. <laughs> Only God can give us the grace to love them, and we will do exactly that if we ask him. One more little small quote here. Mahatma Gandhi shares in his autobiography that in his student days in England, he was deeply touched by reading the Gospels. And he can seriously consider converting Christianity, which seemed to offer a real solution to the caste system that divided the people of India. Okay, So one Sunday he attended church services and decided to ask the minister for enlightenment on salvation and other doctrines. But when Gandhi entered the sanctuary, the ushers refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go elsewhere to worship with his own people. He left and never came back, and he said this, quote, If Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. Well, that, this was a challenging study that I've been doing for the last month, it seems like. That's most of that. So, I, I mean, I can't explain it no better than that. That's why I just went and read it all, okay? Tried to put that in my own words. That's R. Ken Hughes. So, where are we at here? Peter invites them in. I read y'all the quote about Mahatma Gandhi. So, we're in 23, let's call it D, where Peter... 
So we'll start at 23. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. Okay? He invites in these Gentiles and this Roman soldier into, into their home. Unheard of. Okay? That's not done. So on the next day, he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. These brethren, okay, these are believers. These are Jewish Christians that were living in Joppa. They accompanied Peter to go see Cornelius. We, if we look in um, 11, 12, we're going to see. Well, they're mentioned a few more times. Let's look in 10, 1045, where it says, All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. Because that's those... That's these guys, okay? Circumcised believers. And then in 11, 12, they're mentioned again where it says, The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. This is Peter recounting this whole thing to the brothers in Jerusalem. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. And these six brethren also went with me and entered the man's house. So these six witnesses are there with Peter. So there's six. We know that. We know they were Jewish believers. Uh, when William Barclay wrote his commentary, it's called The Acts of the Apostles, his uh, explanation for this was that you need seven witnesses to validate a case in, the, in this culture. And so that's why there were six plus Peter. So there you go. So there's enough witnesses. When they see this happen, they can go back and tell, and, they, and there could be no dispute. you got seven witnesses to the, to the events. Okay? <clears throat> so, on the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together. So here we're back to Cornelius now. Cornelius was waiting for them, and he called together his relatives and his close friends. So Cornelius was really searching here. You know I mean, he's calling together all his family, all his friends. Man, this guy's coming. He's going to tell us a story. You know, he's going to give us a message from God. So when Peter entered, when Peter entered, he entered this man's home. This is a Roman city. This is an extremely Roman city, okay? He's got all it's, so he and then this is a Roman soldier in the Roman army. They're the oppressors, and he enters this man's home. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter held out his hand for him so so Cornelius could kiss his ring. Is that what is that what it says? No. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, our Catholic friends would say you know, Peter was the pontiff, the first pontiff, sure. the bridge to God. I think that's what pontiff means, really. Peter did not hold out his ring so they could kiss his hand, did he? I, I want to notice what both of them, both these men, this man, uh, Cornelius, is a Roman centurion. He's commander of men. He has, a, he has status in the Roman hierarchy of this area. And he falls on his knees before this Jewish fisherman in humility and says, man, I, I, I need to hear what you have to say. Now, Peter's response is also humble. But Peter raised him up saying, stand up 
for I too am just a man. Now, I couldn't really find this out for sure, but I'm not sure if he thinks that Cornelius may think he's also an angel because of his response there. Stand up. I'm not an angel. I'm just a man. I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think it really sticks one way half a dozen the other, but the main thing is see these, both of these men have humble attitudes toward each other. Cornelius could have easily said, ah, I've commanded you to come and here you are. But no, he falls at his, he, he kneels down in front of him in reverence. And Peter could have easily said, I'm a, I'm a servant of God. And, you know, but they're both humble, both, hum, both showing humility, godliness. So that's good. So Peter says, stand up. I too am just a man. Verse 27. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And so Peter said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner to visit him. Okay, now who wants to go find that in the Old Testament Torah? Where's that written? That it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with a non-Jew. It's not, it's not there. It's not there. This is, um, you know, how they, they would build fences around the law. There would be fences, then there would be fences, fences around the fences. They would build fences around those fences. That's kind of what this is. Over time, this was not really a written law, but it was such a taboo in their culture. You know, Peter says here, it's just unlawful for me to do this. It's not written. It's just, it's just very taboo, very frowned upon. Um, my MacArthur... Uh, study Bible. What does it say there? Ten twenty-eight. Yeah, he says unlawful. It says literally to breaking a taboo. So Peter followed the Jewish standards and traditions his whole life. His comments revealed his acceptance of a new standard in which Jews no longer were to consider Gentiles profane. But the word there he uses unlawful, but that's not anywhere in the law. Okay. <clears throat> so you yourself know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Uh, that is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I asked, for what reason have you sent for me? And so Cornelius answers and says, Four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. So this is about three o'clock in the afternoon. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. That always means angel. Okay. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Now, at this point, another common commenter, I've, I've been relying on heavily for this, uh, Dr. Uh, he's pre he used to be the preacher at Green Acres Baptist Church up there in Tyler. 
I can't remember his name now. He made the comment here about the whole prayer thing that we talked about a couple weeks ago about this God here, the prayers of unbelievers. Where that's where I heard that from. What happened was, just real quickly, in, back in the 80s, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, his name was Bailey Smith. He made a comment on stage at one of their conventions that God doesn't hear a prayer if it's not a Christian. Only He only hears the prayers of Christians. And that was kind of a controversy that, that's kind of started there because uh, that's not true. <laughs> because right here he says, God has heard your prayer, Cornelius, you unsaved Gentile. And he has, he has seen your, your acts of charity. I mean, if God didn't hear, uh, uh, he, how would he hear our prayer for salvation? I mean, how would he hear our, when we call out to him for, for mercy? I mean, right? God hears everything. He knows everything. He knows every word that comes out of our mouth, every thought that crosses our brain, every feeling that comes through our heart, every emotion, everything. He knows everything. He is omnipresent or omniscient. Means he knows all things through all times. There's nothing he don't know. Nothing he doesn't hear. Now he may not respond. There are several passages throughout Scripture that the Jews believe that God's response to prayer depended on the righteousness of the prayer. Okay, but that's neither here nor there. It's not what we're, we're not going to get off on that. That's just, I just wanted to mention that that was President Bailey Smith back in the '80s who made that statement. About God does only hears the prayers of Christians. Uh, we're in verse 32. So, Cornelius here, he recounts his vision to Peter, and then he practically begs Peter to give him the gospel. He's almost, you know, he's practically begging him for it. So let's start back at 31. He said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. And he is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately. Right off the bat, I did what I was told. I sent for you immediately. And you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here. I've assembled my entire household. All my friends, probably many of his soldiers, I've assembled everyone here before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So he's like, we're ready, Peter. Lay it on us. I've been praying for this. I believe Cornelius' main prayer was for the Lord to, to reveal himself to him. Okay, And this is that prayer being answered. He brought Peter here to give him the gospel. Um, so here we go. We're going to let's see Peter's fourth sermon here. This is the fourth little sermon we see recorded in Acts from Peter, basically presenting the gospel. Okay, I want us to notice the simplicity of the gospel. How Peter just um, summarizes this thing into these short few verses. It's amazing. And uh, so remember, Peter preached till the day of Pentecost. Three thousand were saved. That was the first one. Then he healed the lame man at the at Solomon's portico. That drew a huge crowd. He preached there. That was the second one. Then he 
gave the same message in front of the Sanhedrin when he was arrested. Him and John. And now here we're going to see one more time here for Cornelius' benefit in his household. So let's just notice the simplicity of it. So we'll start here, verse 34. So opening his mouth, Peter said, oh, yeah. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. The, the kind of the, he's, that, what he's conveying there is, I, he says, I now realize, or I am now coming to realize, that's kind of tense of that verb. I am now coming to realize that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. And then it says, he is Lord of all. So what's he saying there? The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, so to the Jews first. He has revealed himself in his son. To the Jews first. Preaching peace. That's peace between God and man. God reconciling us to himself. Preaching peace through Jesus Christ. And he says he is Lord of all. That word Lord there is Kyrios. K-Y-R-I-O-S. It means Lord. That's the word they use for Caesar as well. Okay. And here's where a lot of the problem came from because every year a Roman citizen, when they went to pay their taxes, their yearly taxes, they were required to make an oath when they handed over their taxes. They had to say, Kaiser Estan Kyrios, which means Caesar is Lord. Okay. Well, the Christians, um, well, they, they did what we would call civil disobedience because they refused to. Proclaim Caesar as Lord. They would, they would say Jesus is Lord, which is also one. Probably they may be the first creed of the of the Christian Church. Jesus is Lord. Um, I think who's it? I think Alistair Begg. I was listening to sermon by him the other day, and he said that specifically. This was the first Christian creed, or at least one of the very earliest ones. Jesus is Lord. But they were required to say Kaiser Estan Kyrios, which means which Caesar is Lord. And so the Christians refused and they were arrested for treason. That was the charge brought against most of the Christians in the Roman Empire. It was treason because they wouldn't proclaim Caesar as Lord. And Peter's telling that to a Roman centurion. He's sitting here telling this to a Roman. See, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And now we don't see any of this, but I was just thinking about this the other day and I was like, man, how must it have been for Cornelius. Now, he's a Roman soldier in the Roman army. And he comes to Christ and receives the Spirit. And you know he's going to be required to proclaim Caesar as Lord. It's none of this is recorded, but I was just thinking about it. It's like he said, this, what... yeah. this, this is in first importance. This is in first importance, yeah. I just. Right. I'm just wondering what what my, what Cornelius's life was like. I bet it wasn't easy. It was not easy. It, I'm sure it was. We don't know, but I'm sure it was not a walk in the park after this. But that's not what we're called to. We're not called to a walk in the park. We're called to suffer if, if we're called for that. 
what did Peter and John say after after they were flogged? All the all the apostles they counted it. How was it worth? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. <clears throat> That's quite a picture for us to think about, ponder over. What may have happened to Cornelius here after his conversion? Uh, so where we are, we're in verse what, 37. Okay, yeah, verse 37. So he says, let us go back. The word that he has sent to the sons of Israel, to the Jews first, preaching peace to Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. So he's just saying, y'all all know what's happened. You know, you're, you live in the area. You, you've heard all the stories about you know, the crucifixion and the resurrection. You yourselves know the thing that took place. Okay, that's what he says. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. Now he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So, well, that's I love how he just summarizes Jesus' entire earthly ministry right there. In those couple of words. Let's read that again. This is his whole ministry. How God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. There you go. But we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So he says, all this is true. We witnessed every bit of it. All the things you heard, we saw it. We were there. And then here we have the crucifixion. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Okay, there's, we're into the homo agia now. Remember that? The homo agia? The one message that was preached after, from the first day of the church onward. Christ's birth, deity and flesh, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return as judge one day. All right, so we're witness of all the things. They put him on a. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross. There's a, there's a crucifixion. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he would become visible. There's the resurrection. Not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That's Christians. God, Jesus only appeared to Christians, to believers. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. So this is just Peter's way of saying here. In other words. This was not some ethereal ghost or some kind of specter, you know, this mist. This was a, you know, a living, breathing, walking, talking, eating man. Physical. He was a physical body. He was here. We, we ate with him. We spoke with him. We hugged him. We touched him. And uh, God raised him from the dead, and he, he walked among us. Okay, so... That's what that's what he's getting at there. This was a real man. He really he, he really came back from the dead. We I saw him myself. Okay, I walked with him. I saw him crucified. I saw him afterwards. Eyewitness testimony. And just real quick, I had a note here about how he walked among us. Just remember, for 40 days, 
before Jesus ascended, he walked among us humans in a glorified body. He walked, he, he was here. Now, some of the, some of our brothers would believe that, um, to think that there's going to be a millennial kingdom where glorified Christians will return from heaven with Jesus and live on the earth with non-glorified people is ludicrous. Not according to this, because Jesus was here for 40 days. He did it. So there's a precedent right there for the millennial kingdom. I just thought that was interesting. That was all me. <laughs> and uh, So where we leave off? 42. And he has ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that he, Jesus, is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and of the dead. So he is now going to he's now going to judge the world. Okay. So we saw his life, his ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his appearance for 40 days to the believers in Jerusalem. He is now ascended and has been made judge of the living and of the dead. And here's the kicker of him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone, everyone, not every Jew, everyone who has believes, who believes in him, receives forgiveness of sins. So that's it, man. That's the gospel right there. So, man, if you're you meet someone or some you get into conversation with someone you want to share the gospel with them this is a great place to go this is a gospel in just a few a few verses here I mean, this is the gospel Peter gave to Cornelius so it's good enough for Cornelius good enough for Peter it's a really good place to mark to use for evangelism And so he is now crowned king, lord, and judge, and everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness. All right, moving on. Verse 44. <clears throat> now while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who were listening to the message. So I mean, it's almost like he interrupted him here. But the Holy Spirit interrupts Peter. He's not even, he's still preaching. You know, and he's... The Holy Spirit falls, and he's so Peter's like, "Oh, oh, I'm not done yet." <laughs> Spirit said, "You're done, <laughs> done." Um, that's just a, that's a you know that's a strange, not strange, but just well maybe I, that's what's the word unusual. The way the Spirit falls on these people, I mean, it's like like they were already had one foot in the door almost. You know, all they needed to hear was the, the truth to have it all laid out for them, and they were. Ready to believe, right? Just, they were on the, they were on it, they were on hair trigger. That's, they were on a hair trigger, and God said, "All right, I'm going to bring you, I'm going to bring you the message. Here it is, Peter. Tell them, tell them the truth." Forty-five, and all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Man, that's so important. Because, uh, you know, like we talked about earlier, we were in danger of becoming the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem here. And just being a, Christianity just turned into kind of a sect of Judaism. Like we, 
because you know at this time there were Jews, but the Jews make up a very small portion of the world's population. So if Christianity would have remained in the, within the Jewish realm, well, that mean it, it would just it would so limit you know just how many people could come into the covenant. So thank God He included everyone, you know, and that's that's what that's what's happening here. He's expanding the gospel to include the whole world, not just these Jews. But these Jews were amazed. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. So they were still kind of looking at Gentiles as goyim, you know, unwashed. That's what they considered Gentiles, goyim. For they were hearing and speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who had received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Got through 10. So just real quick. Got a few more minutes. Let's... let's Let's look at some, some things we just kind of into this section where we where we called it God's grace for every race, chapters eight, nine, and ten. Where we're seeing the Samaritans brought in to the family. We see this Ethiopian eunuch brought into the family. We see Paul, this extremely conservative, legalistic Pharisee. He's brought in. His mind has changed, and now we see these Gentiles. And so that's God's grace for every race. So what do we see from this? That God wants prejudice removed from our hearts. Everyone is potential heir of grace. I don't care how dirty they are, how poor they are, how rich they are, how sinful they are. We don't get to write people off. Only God gets to do that. Only the man on the middle cross gets to decide who gets to go. We don't have no say in that. We weren't on that middle cross. Okay. Number two is anyone who truly is seeking God will find Jesus. That's how Cornelius found Jesus. I mean, God literally orchestrated this meeting miraculously. I mean, that's amazing. But we also know that uh, no one really seeks God. That's what Romans, Peter, uh, Apostle in Romans, no one seeks God. No one does good. No one is righteous. Not one. But yet, I just said anyone who truly seeks God will find Jesus. So what I'm saying there is if you're if someone is seeking God, it's because God has put it in their heart to seek him. God has granted them through the conviction of the Spirit. Because what did the Spirit come to do? Convict us of what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Didn't Jesus say that uh, no one comes to the Father unless he draws him? That's exactly what he said. No one comes to be unless the Father draws him. So no one seeks God unless it's granted to them to seek God. But when they begin seeking God because God has granted them, they will find Jesus. He will reveal Jesus to them. Number three, let's see. <laughs> this is a good one. This is all me too. I don't get to tell God how he how he gets to save someone. I don't, I don't get to do that. Yeah. Okay. So God doesn't limit himself to one experience. We've saw that. And all these conversion experiences we've been over, 
they all happened differently. Y'all notice that? How baptism would come in a spot? It, it wasn't always believe, baptize, or it, not, it was different. Even the one we looked at last week, those 12 disciples of John the Baptist, when the Holy Spirit fell on them, they'd been walking around believing for a while. They just hadn't been told about the Holy Spirit. And as soon as Paul told them, he laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit fell on them. They were rebaptized in the name of Christ. So we don't get to tell God how this goes. Okay? That's his that's his business. He does it however he wants. And we just have to accept the consequences of that. If the man in the middle cross says you can go, you get to go. We don't have no say so in that. So like, let's just look, for instance, Jesus healed three blind men while he was walking, okay? He healed many, but here's these three. We're going to talk about these three. He healed one, he touched him, and his vision returned. That's in Matthew 9, 29. On another time, he touched a man, and he said, oh, I see people like trees walking. They look like trees walking around. So Jesus touched him again, and his vision was, and his vision was healed. That's in Mark 8, 24. And then in John 9, he spits in the clay and puts it on the man's eyes. And he tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, wash the clay off your eyes, and the man's vision returns. So there's three different times Jesus healed a man, three different ways, his, his choice, not ours. Okay. Vance Habner, he said that if these three men were alive today, Within about five minutes, we'd have three new denominations. <laughs> the one-touch church, the two-touch church, and the spit-in-the-eye church. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our big takeaway from this, this whole section we've been in. And when we come back next week, we'll get back. We'll go into 11, and we'll, uh, we're going to see Barnabas and Paul and Antioch and we're going to kind of get out of this section of all these different conversions. And we're going to really see the, the center or the epicenter is going to move to Antioch. We're going to kind of move up into the Gentile. Because the Jews, have, you know, it's, it's came to the Jews first. Now we're going to move on. So that'll, that's what we'll do next week. So we got what we got. <laughs> Not much. Well, the just quickly, this reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2. You can't, I don't think you can hear all this and not be reminded. We, we love, by grace, we're saved through faith, not of ourselves, gift of God, all those things. We're his workmanship. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace that and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's right. He's broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, and that's exactly what we're just seeing right there. That's a good point. We, we, I know we talked about this a while back. I remember Kevin talked about it, these, these three streams of humanity. Before this, there was two. There was Jew and Gentile. Yeah. And then through the body of Christ, through the blood of Christ, Jew and Gentile have been created into what they call the new man, which is the adopted sons and daughters of the king of God. 
So we're neither Jew nor Gentile. We're something completely new, something different. We're a new man, what Paul calls us, a new man. That's a good point. But um, anything else? I've, I've listened to the last two weeks uh, and with interest in discussion of Cornelius. And um, all I could do was come back to Paul uh, to give us a, a, a good explanation of who Cornelius is and how he became a Christian. I guess that was the point of discussion. Was he a Christian or no? The point of, was not was he Christian, but was he an Old Testament kind of an Old okay. Testament saint yes, yes. being brought into the New Covenant? Right. Yeah. So uh, I just that drew me right to Paul eight twenty seven. Now he, God, who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So I think you could say he was an Old Testament saint, and uh, you know, I don't know, Pete. I don't know. I'm not going to talk out of that. What I can say is he was elect. He was elect. Yes, that's my point. He was elect. He was he was chosen. He was an elect who was brought under conviction by the Spirit and was given the gospel. That's all I'm willing to say. <laughs> I don't know if he was saved through the Old Testament covenant because the text doesn't tell us. If, if that's your stance, I'm like. That's fine. I'm not going to talk you out of that opinion. That's not what the text we were just on is about. It's about this man being brought into the new covenant and, and Peter's heart being changed towards Gentiles. Cornelius' state, when he receives the visit from the angel, it's just a point of theology that's fun to discuss, but it is not essential to the point of the passage. Right. The point of the passage is about Peter. Right. All we can say for sure is Cornelius was elect. Because he was saved, therefore he was therefore he was foreknown, he was called, he was convicted, and he was reborn of spirit and water by by no uh, by no merit of his own. All according to the will of God. All according to the will of God. This was all orchestrated by God from before the foundations of the earth. He knew Cornelius would be saved in this way by this. Always knew it. So all I'm willing to say about Cornelius is he's elect. And he's been he was been pre evangelized. <laughs> he has he was been made of known the one true God versus all these other Roman gods. He had been brought into the environment of Judaism where they worship one God, not many gods. He knew about the events that had been taking place in the area, and I would call that like a pre evangelization Cornelius. And then the final step was when God brought Peter he gave him the gospel. Because what is the gospel? It's the power of God unto salvation. Okay? Well, that, we better go because I got to sing and it's 1029. <laughs> so, uh, Brock, can you, can you pray us out of here? Gracious God, we thank you for.